evening. Welcome to Shakespeare and Company and to the second of our NYU events this season. Nicolette's new poetry collection, Up Late, is one of the most extraordinary books I've read in some years. Readers of his previous works will find everything that made them so impressive here. The seamless blending of the personal and the political, the meticulous attentiveness to the everyday, the continuous interrogation of the poetic urge and practice, the humour, the tenderness, the joy. Except in Up Late, all of these attributes are weathered and ripened by five more years of life. And then there's a the title poem itself, the collapsed star at the heart of the book. Up Late is a raw and immediate meditation on grief and loss, a poem whose emotional power comes in large part from the fact that it is utterly devoid of melodrama. It's just a son thinking through his father's death on the page and is all the more beautiful for that. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Eclair. Oh, hello. Uh, <laughs> so it's very weird and lovely to be back here. Um, I read a poem called Talking to the Sun in Washington Square. So Zidi and I uh, just moved back uh, two years ago from New York and uh, we taught at NYU and this is a poem really about sitting, spending a lot of time sitting on a bench in Washington Square, which I'm sure some of you know about. Looking after children, means simultaneously building a field hospital, a hedge school, a diner, and an open-air prison with your bare hands, and operating them at a continual loss. In this instant, they are playing, and you're sitting on a bench where the sun applies itself to the square, and you can feel it on your skin, asking how it's been since you last touched. And you tell her things are all right, mostly. The sky is the epitome of sky. The clouds give birth to themselves. The little people are getting even better at belittling the bigger people, and you are done in now. You did your bit. Bird watching today in Central Park until you saw an osprey with a fish in its beak and a splinter in a finger meant you had to all walk out and hail a cab. And you saw the booth on 6th had its phone yanked off and wires dangled. It took you to the endless conversation at dinner last night about silence where your wife mentioned John Cage and the persistence of absence and presence, or something. And the Mexican writer recited the noun for quiet in four languages, and you said nothing, offering, you thought, the most evincive contribution. <laughs> now the sky is trying to tell you something by splitting through the cloud like that. Some secret as to how its light walks and flies at the same time, or why the nature of formations, clouds, crowds, poems, marriage, is that they dissolve, and why there is such an effort in just not. Heaven is a past participle of heave, the sun notes, and the fountain stands to attention until she sets and it slumps to the pool. You'd like to hear more about that sometime, but not quite yet. You want to know if all lives viewed from the inside present as a series of failures. You want the side door held ajar a moment longer. This is the permacrisis, son. It is grim. The era of collapsing systems, of gaming the algorithm, of the discontent late capitalism must inflict on us for it to thrive. What you want is old friends who admit to complications, not followers or allies. The instantaneous personal magnetism of other people is almost overwhelming sometimes, attractive or repelling. The sun rests its hand on you and everyone and says very softly, 
Look how my light alights on the rock dove and the litter bin alike, useless to corporations, meeting the froth of the cottonwood, the bespectacled pianist, interstitial fauna, the angry kings of mirth, lovers solving the crossword, a Chinese student quietly crying, all varying configurations of the code, and wait until I disappear before you wander back in the way that fire wanders to make an early dinner and clean up, to bathe the children and tell them stories. All right, don't, please don't. Please don't. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna read that long poem Adam mentioned up late. I apologize if you've heard me read this poem before. It's the sort of center of the book. I feel I should read it, but it's about my dad dying, so you know it's not great fun uh, for any of us. Uh, it's in a few sections. There's asterisks. I don't know how to pronounce an asterisk, so I'll just raise my hand between the sections. Up late. Uh, my dad died of COVID, I should say, uh, in, in Ireland in a hospital uh, two years ago now. If I shut my eyes to the new dark, I find that I start to experience time in its purest state. A series of durations rising and dilating beneath my inwards gaze. An eruptive core where the umbra blooms in crestless waves of darkness as within another umbra bubbles up from the interior, from nothingness, from nowhere. And at the center of the crest of this disintegrating, reassembling nest the jet of time generates is consciousness, the planetary mind, aloft, alone, Mine, jostled and spun like a ping-pong ball. My father died today. Sorry to bolt that on. You understand the shift required. This morning, the consultant said, your father now is clawing at the mask and is exhausted, and we've thrown everything we have at this. It's a terrible disease. He promises to give him morphine and that a nurse will be beside him at all times to hold his hand and talk him through it. It being the transition, the change of state, the fall of light, the trade, the instant of the hand itself turning from the subject into object. No, we are not allowed in the ward and there cannot be exceptions. Thank you for making this difficult call. But I know what the body wants. Continuance, continuance, continuance at any cost. But dying then, as we speak, my father in the IC ward of Antrim Area Hospital, the IC ward, the ICU, ICU too. On Sunday, they permitted us to Zoom, and he was prone in a hospital gown strapped to a white slab. The hospital gown split at the back, and the pale, cold skin of his back was exposed. He lifted his head to the camera, and his face was dark red and puffy, bisected vertically by the mask. And we had to ask Elizabeth, the nurse, to say his words back to us. He sounded underwater. It's been a busy day, but not a good day. I could see even with the mask on, your little satisfaction with the phrase managed out. And the achievement left you so depleted, you lowered your head back to the slab, having done with us. Like some seal on a rock, looking up as we pass on the Blue Pool ferry out to Garanish. Dad... You poor bastard, I see you. You lay like that for a week alone with your thoughts in the room, tethered, breathless, undefended, 
at sea as on an ice floe slipping down into the shipping lanes. The eye adjusts, even to darkness, even to the presence of what overwhelms us. And as I make my way from the bed to the study, the soles of my feet on the carpet warp it, as any fabric made of this space-time will distort beneath the force of a large object. And my father, as it happens, is gigantic. And if you thought an understanding could be reached, you are wrong, for it could not. The goldfish pilots the light of itself through a ten-gallon darkness, and I keep watch as the large hand of the clock covers the small and leaves it behind to the weak approximation I sit here in and finish writing. I want the poem to destroy time. What are the ceremonies of forgetting? There is a spring in Boeotia that lets the river Letha enter our world. King Jucky's ale of forgetfulness. Excessive phlegm. But I like the notion of the angel lightly tapping the baby in its soft hollow above the top lip, erasing all the child knows, all its grief, all its terrible regret before it descends again, fresh to the world. After your stroke, you were born once more, a smaller, greyer, softer, and after mum died, left bewildered, adrift, ordering crap online and following the auctions, the horses, the football, the golf, but hungering for company, for anyone, sending money to that Kenyan who was younger than me and flying out to Germany to see her, and again, before Jackie arrived on the scene, the bottled blonde who had her demons, by which she meant she was a violent alcoholic, although with Louise things seemed steady enough for a few months, until you got stuck in one of your loops about her ex-husband funding her and the changing plans of an ingrate daughter. You could never let anything go. A trait I also suffer from and kind of admire, but that isn't possible here. The tick of the clock is meltwater dripping into the fissure. The minute hand clicks across the R hand and hovers for a minute, exactly. And impinging on the vision is your slack, wild face and the way a nurse's hand might hold your cold hand or try again to lift your hand, but your hand now will not respond. I have been writing elegies for you all my life, Father, in one form or another. But now I find the path is just this game trail through the forest, the forested mind, which I must follow in the manner of an animal, a deer, a fox, a chimpanzee, returning to the clearing to nuzzle the corpse, to lick its nape or bite it softly, to look away and look again and wait for a response. One hand on the clock holds the other for a minute before going on alone. It is death that is implicit in the ticking. One must negotiate the next moment. The mind will not stop and certain things are good to think with, goldfish, carpet, clock. I want something fit to mediate the procreative business of redoubling the brittle world and settle on an image for a second, since it is a given that the mind will keep returning to the magic, the le jeu de main, the trick one hand holding your hand as it turns into an object, as I turn back along the track towards the fold, towards the corner of the field where the father's body lies, and with an animal's dumb clarity do grief work, kiss your hand and kiss your cheek and leave my forehead for a time pressed against yours. 
When I phoned the hospital this afternoon to say goodbye, though you were no longer lucid, Elizabeth, the nurse, held the phone against your ear and I could hear your breathing, or perhaps the rasping of the oxygen machine, and I said what you'd expect. I love you, Dad, and I want you to keep on fighting, but if you are too tired now and in too much pain, then you should stop fighting and let go, and whatever happens, it's okay. I love you. You were a good father. The kids love you. Thank you for everything. Then I hung up and seen. Impossible to grieve and not know the vanity of grief, to watch oneself perform the rituals that take us. Automaton of grief I howled, of course, by myself in my office, then sobbed for a bit on the sofa. An elegy, I think, is words to bind a grief in, a companionship of grief, a spell to keep it safe and sound, to keep it from escaping. There are various ways to memorize. Plato calls on Nemosine. My grandfather Bertie liked to tie a knot in his blue handkerchief. My father wrote in biro on his palm. I cannot leave the poem alone. Do you remember the pure world? I remember it from being a kid, always at stake in that place. One moved through it sideways, through forests of time, lost in them, and had to be called back to the moment. Infinities growing in stone, in moss, in the hay shed, the rain, the wind, in the darkness under the cattle grid. Rilke says of the pure, unseparated element, someone dies and is it. It's after two. You're dead by now, I hope. Who thought to write that? But there's no hurry now, no effort, no need to call. You might be only sitting in your red chair, endlessly flicking through the channels. When I asked the doctor, Andrew Black, he said, it could take minutes, it could take hours. And I see you slumped, your eyes shut, propped against some pillows, something in you finally given up, defying gravity, some obedience to objecthood settled in you now and set up home, set in stone. Outside on the motorway, the headlights of the vehicles are necklaces of diamonds, double strung, and trailing westwards alongside them, the necklaces of garnets. Dad. I cannot stay in the room with you too long in my mind. It is too hard. I thought there would be futurity. I thought things would happen. Nothing major. Barbecues. Why barbecues? God knows. You're walking round Bantry at the Friday market in your shorts in the light rain. Your white tube socks pulled up and a bright T-shirt from some Spanish golf course tucked into your shorts. By the way, Dad, we are even, you and I. No need. Look, I absolutely still the room is. Outside, the widowed sky has grown huge with stars. The Milky Way meandering like the Ballanderry, though the night has come with work to do. It sits with you and broods. It wants you to come at your own pace. And in the next moment, you might get up and speak clearly to everything. Creation, extinction, infinities rising within you. Alistair Laird is dead. Fuckity, fuck, fuckity, fuck, 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 fuck. My dad is dead. Bad luck. The light breaks and the night breaks and the line breaks and the day is late assembling. Rows of terraced houses are clicking into place. Clouds decelerate and make like everything is normal. The children want in porridge. Voices forcing pattern out of circumstance, pitching rhythmic incident on little grids of expectation, satisfaction.
disappointment, this new awe, and walk into school at the corner where the halfway house is, leaves animated in a briefest circle by the wind. Okay, I'll finish with uh, a little coda to that poem. Uh, a few months after uh, my dad died, my sister and I had to go back to his house in Tyrone and clear the house out. And Tyrone is uh, in an area, there's a dark sky observatory, there's so few houses and it's in the Sperrin Mountains that um, the sky at night is amazing. Anyway, this is called Night Sky in Tyrone. After someone close to you dies, you become obsessed with uh, thinking about them. Um, I find, anyway, that every bird that you see is maybe him come back to have a wee look. So this is, uh, mentions that. Night sky in Tyrone. Maybe birds provide the eyes the dead look out of. Or is it knots in furniture they queue up at to spy from? Bickering, whispering with shock how grey her hair is now. How skinny he has got. My sister thinks that portly robin on the lawn is dad come back to say hello and he takes a little hop out of sunlight into shade before alighting on the compost bag and lengthily explaining everything that we can see is his. His apple tree, his grass, that patch of rhubarb he'd been about to cut back. Why not? We finish up a bottle, then another, and the evening's coming on and then the night is here. And we sit out underneath so much made known that's always there, the depths of emptiness and fire. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.